your own actions because you choose to live a life contrary to God's principles in his word. This guilt and this shame is avoidable and it actually restricts you. It um, isolates you. It hampers you from being a blessing to others and also for God because you end up feeling unworthy or you feel like a failure of no use. I'm not talking about the shame and the guilt that other people have caused you to feel because of their manipulation or their selfishness, which is abhorrent to God when people are treated this way. God can heal this pain and guilt, and that's something that you talk to God, you talk to pastor, you talk to other good Christian, mature, mature Christians about that. I do want to clarify that God can cleanse all unrighteousness and all guilt from our lives when we're faithful to ask and then do all that he requires of us in his word. It says in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This cleansing that God performs is a cleansing of all sin and guilt. His cleansing is thorough and it's complete. And we have to realise this and live accordingly to have the joys that are associated with being cleansed. It's an amazing freedom knowing that God accepts you when you truly repent and keep going for him. It says in Proverbs 24, 16, A just man falleth seven times and riseth up again. If we choose to stay down and be weighed down by that regret and that shame, then we are unusable for Christ. That's why it's important that we do get up and we keep going. When we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as our Saviour, God looks at us through the Lord Jesus Christ. He sees us in all the white holiness and purity of his Son. And this is the great New Testament doctrine of imputation of our sin to the account of Christ and his righteousness to our account. This is an amazing hope that we can cling to in this wretched world. In Romans chapter 4, um, Paul quotes part of the psalm saying, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. The old sins and the resulting, and the resulting guilt and shame have passed away when we are a new creature in Christ. So even our guilt from sins before we were saved, God has lovingly given us the freedom from these. We need to make sure we're living in this freedom so we're not hindered by shame and regret. 2 Corinthians 5.17, this well-known verse says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. So now what I want to do is I want to focus on the truly born-again believer who knows what a Christian life should entail. We know what the Bible says and the principles that we need to live by and the blessings that are promised to those who do so. There are a few key things that the Bible gives us clear direction that we should be doing and as a result we get to live a grounded life with the options to be free from the burdens and regret and shame that come along with not, not living according to his principles. When we choose to live in a way that ignores biblical principles, whether this is on purpose or not, it leads to a life where your choices lead to actions which lead to living in sin, and that has consequences as a result. We have to carry baggage that we collect, and sometimes this baggage will be attached for life. We also give place to the devil in our lives, and he will start fooling with us and fooling with, us, with our minds when we're in this state. Additionally, and probably most, um, most um, I guess, brings the most sadness, is that we grieve the Holy Spirit who seals us. And we also tread underfoot the pearls of wisdom that Christ has given us in his word. 
As a child of God, guilt, shame and regrets will be the natural consequences of living against God and his ordained principles. The Bible teaches we can prevent these consequences in our lives by knowing his word so we don't end up doing these things that will result in this baggage. So we live in a way that there's no opportunities for these burdens to even be an issue in the first place. Matthew 22, 29 says, Ye do err, not knowing the scriptures, nor the power of God. I can't stress enough knowing your Bible well to make wise decisions to live your life in stability. So as we go through the scriptures tonight, you might see some areas in your life where your actions don't align with the word of God. So you've got a choice to make at that point. Will you submit to his word and change? Or will you continue to do what you're doing knowing that as a child of God, one of the consequences will eventually be shame, guilt and regret. You also will have no stability in your life. When as Christians we live in sin, and if we're truly born again, there will be shame and eventually regret associated with a lifestyle that we live that's contrary to God's word. The Holy Spirit begins to be quenched, and the things that God hates and that Jesus had to pay for his life that we do will take their toll on a person who is saved and a true child of God. You'll end up having inner and outer turmoil. We also then live in guilt because we know we hurt the Saviour. And then we live in fear because there's a promise in Scripture of the chastising hand of God upon those who are his children but go against his word and will. The Bible tells us in Proverbs 3.12, For whom the Lord loveth, he correcteth, even as a father the son in whom he delighteth. If you turn to Isaiah chapter 33, I've got a a small little part I want to look at there, and then we'll turn over to um, Psalms 15. And in the the prophet Isaiah's time, we, we read in Isaiah chapter 33 that there were wicked, rebellious people who lived in Jerusalem. Isaiah refers to these people as the sinners in Zion. They were hypocrites as well because of, because of their lifestyles and, as a, and they were feeling guilty and afraid and they feared judgment was about to come. If you read with me from verse 14 in Isaiah 33. The sinners in Zion are afraid. Fearfulness hath surprised the hypocrites. Who among us shall dwell with the devouring fire? Who among us shall dwell with everlasting burnings? He that walketh righteously and speaketh uprightly, he that despiseth the gain of oppressions, that shaketh his hands from holding of bribes, that stoppeth his ears from hearing of blood, and shutteth his eyes from seeing evil. He shall dwell on high, his place of defence shall be the munitions of rocks, bread shall be given him, His waters shall be sure. Thine eyes shall see the king in his beauty. They shall behold the land that is very far off. At this time, the people in Jerusalem had just seen God's mighty works in devouring an Assyrian army. Um, King Hezekiah at that time, he'd shown great faith in rebelling against this very powerful king. And as a result of that, um, this king had now encamped against Jerusalem. The good thing for Hezekiah, his faith was rewarded and God took care of the problem. We read in 2 Kings 19.35, And it came to pass that night that the angel of the Lord went out and smote in the camp of the Assyrians an hundred fourscore and five thousand. 
And when they arose in the morning, early in the morning, behold, they were all dead, dead corpses. So we're talking 185,000 dead soldiers outside the city. God had sent his angel that night and had devoured them. Seemingly, uh, based on reading the scriptures, it was a fire that had ripped through that camp and destroyed the enemies of God's people. Another, another result of God's judgment on this foreign army, other than this great victory, was that the sinners in Jerusalem themselves realised what God had done and they now feared they were next because of their wicked ways. At the end of verse 14 from that reading in Isaiah 33, the question is asked, who will be able to dwell whilst this judgment is occurring? Who will be able to endure the wrath that is coming? They knew as God's chosen people that if they were not obedient, they were going to face consequences. Same thing for us today. If we choose to live in sin, we will live in the resulting shame and associated regrets because we know that we flippantly do things that Jesus Christ had to pay for with his own life. How should we, how should, how, so how can we live free from these burdens? Please turn to Psalm 15, where we'll see some strong foundational principles on how to live a God-pleasing life. We are promised stability at the end of the psalm in our day-to-day lives that comes from God and from performing his principles. So Psalm chapter 15, it's a short psalm and I plan to go through it tonight. Lord, who shall abide in thy tabernacle? Who shall dwell in thy holy hill? He that walketh uprightly and worketh righteousness and speaketh the truth in his heart. He that backbiteth not with his tongue, nor doeth evil to his neighbour, nor taketh up a reproach against his neighbour. In whose eyes a vile person is contemned, but he honoureth them that fear the Lord. He that sweareth to his own hurt and changeth not. He that putteth not out his money to usury, nor taketh reward against the innocent. He that doeth these things shall never be moved. So verse by verse through this this short Psalm of David, we're going to see some things that are found in the lives of people who please God and then also how we can apply these things today so we can be living in the knowledge that we're doing things right by God and by his word to be blessed with much needed stability. We only have this one short life to please God and to build eternal treasures for our home in heaven. Graciously, God also allows a wonderful life here on earth if you do it his way. He has all the answers you need in his book. And so we get to study this book. And if you do and you apply it, you get to reap the benefits of it. So looking at verse 1 here of Psalm 15. Lord, who shall abide in thy tabernacle? Who shall dwell in thy holy hill? So this first verse here, we see a reference to a a tabernacle and to a holy hill. What we do know is that the tabernacle is the temporary dwelling place for God and the holy hill was the permanent place the temple was built in Jerusalem. So by living the life of this person that we read in this chapter, it affects our life here on this temporary earth and it also affects our life later and our associated rewards in heaven. This gives us an insight that David was talking about our temporary earth as a Christian and and outworking our Christianity as sojourners whilst abstaining from the things that fulfil fleshly lusts. In 1 Peter 2.11 it says, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. 
So these things of this world that the world revels in should be strange to us. We should be strangers to them. This is another blessing of being a child of God. Not only do we have the promise of a glorious life in heaven with Jesus later on, we can also have peace and joy here on this earth despite our circumstances if we live our lives according to his word. And we'll move on to verse 2 here. It says, He that walketh uprightly and worketh righteousness and speaketh the truth in his heart. So right now we read the first three things that mark the life of a person who's going to live a stable life that God intended for us. Now these verses contain so much content in just a small amount of words, I could never give it um, justice tonight. So I really, really um, ask you to study this for, your, for yourself, for your own benefit, this chapter. But we see here walking uprightly. What does this mean? So walking uprightly meaning, means loving and serving God and also loving others but not in word only, in truth, and doing this all the time, not just when it's convenient. Imagine someone on a tightrope or imagine someone trying to carry a load on their head on a basket. If they lean to the side or they jolt unexpectedly, over they go or over their load goes. They need a strong backbone. They need a strong core. We must also have strong backbones as Christians and walk uprightly in the strength of God and in the faithfulness of the promises in his word. The emperor Napoleon made a mistake when he said that God is on the side of the strongest battalion. This statement has been proven so many times in the Bible and throughout history. Abraham took 318 servants and defeated four kings and their armies. Gideon, with his 300 men, defeated an army of thousands. David, a shepherd boy, untrained for war and armed with a sling, killed a giant. God is on the side of those who do right, not the strongest battalion. Amen. God will fight the battles of those who determine to be in his will. Walking uprightly in God's truths will make all the difference as we face battles in this life. You can expect to live in guilt, shame and regret if you are not upright as a Christian. Next, we see he worketh righteousness. This means we make it our business to do justly to give everyone what is due to them, first to God and then also to men. This person's faith is shown by his good works and therefore is not dead faith. If we are not positively serving the Lord and doing his will to the best of our abilities, we should seriously check our interest in the things of God, remembering that by our fruits we are known. How you work reflects what you think of God. Your works are an expression of the image of God in you. And it's worth thinking about how your works reflect his character. Works as, simply, as simple as cleaning out a bedroom or a cupboard reflects God who makes order out of chaos. The person who labours during the week to provide food does something that God does. A father or mother who faithfully and lovingly raises their children reflects the love, patience and perseverance of God. We know that God is righteous, as are his works. So do your works reflect that? Are your works righteous, reflecting a righteous God? The person in this psalm worked this way. And next we see, he speaketh the truth in his heart. This person's words to God and to men agree with the thoughts and the purposes of their heart. They use language that is sincere and that is aligned with their real motives. They don't tell half-truths. They don't take the truth out of context to support their side of the story. 
It has been said that if a person's words and actions do not line up, then that person lacks character. This is the opposite to mere outward professions and all hypocritical things that some churchgoers can do. There is no way to love God and follow God without loving and following the truth. The two cannot be separated. Winston Churchill said, Men occasionally stumble over the truth, but most of them pick pick themselves up and hurry off as if nothing had happened. And this may be a common response to the truth, but it places those who respond like that on the road to tragedy and guilt that will follow because of people who have been affected. Just remember what Jesus said in John 8.31, If ye continue in my word, then ye are my disciples indeed, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. So not only does the truth reside deep in the heart of a good Christian, it flows out and is lived by the person, and that results in a freedom that only God can give. This person then lives the life that the prophet Micah talks about in Micah 6.8. He hath showed thee, O man, what is good, and what doth the Lord require of thee, to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. So moving on to verse 3 now, this person he that backbiteth not with his tongue, nor doeth evil to his neighbour, nor taketh up a reproach against his neighbour. So now we read some things that this person refrains from doing, some things that they choose not to partake in. Sometimes living a good Christian life is about what you don't do as, as much as what you actually do do. Sometimes we just need to refrain from acting unwisely or we need to hold our tongues from speaking evil. It says here that he backbiteth not with his tongue. So the word backbite, that means to censure, to slander, to reproach, to speak evil of. It goes about as a talebearer or a slanderer, circulating reports unfavourable to others. They don't use, they don't use, this person in this arm doesn't use their tongue to detract from the reputation of anyone and they don't speak evil of anyone. In addition to this, they don't use someone else's weakness as a way of ridiculing them. You never saw Jesus do that. Such regret comes upon a person when we realise how much we have hurt someone and then we tarnish our own testimonies when we have said something in a way to hurt them or slander them. It will come out and you will bear that reproach for your actions. Just refrain from saying something if it is not uplifting. So it says here also, nor doeth evil to his neighbour. So the person who's going to be stable in all their doings, they make sure not to harm others. Our neighbours are everyone else around us, especially those closest to us. They only seek the best for others and prefer others above themselves. They live the words of Jesus when he said, Honour thy father and thy mother, and thou shalt love thy neighbour as thyself, in Matthew 19.19. Sometimes people are just plain evil. They want to see the downfall of another because they are envious or because they just hate them. This is vile in God's eyes and we are commanded to treat others and uh, to love others and to treat them as we want ourselves treated. And this does bring stability in your own life. This person in this psalm doesn't take up a reproach. It says, nor taketh up a reproach. So what does this mean? The idea that taking up or receiving as true or giving credit to something. So we should be slow to, re, to, to believe an evil report about someone. We must not grab it at it greedily or have pleasure in it. Sometimes people will sit there and feed on any little bits of information they can get 
um, and this is vile in God's eyes. We must also make sure that the reproach does not originate from us. If we are constrained to believe it, it's only because the evidence is so strong and overwhelming that we cannot ignore it. And our heart's desire is still to hope that this reproach is not true. That's how this man is. Moving on to verse 4 in Psalms 15. In whose eyes a vile person is contemned, but he honoureth them that fear the Lord. He that sweareth to his own hurt and changeth not. So here we find a few more principles for a person who will be <clears throat> stable in life and live guilt and shame free. In whose eyes a vile person is contemned. This person does not give respect to a vile person because of their wealth or because of their social media, media followers. A good Christian will gauge character itself and not let the other unimportant things influence their opinion of someone. Just because someone is an elite athlete or a famous actor or some tech guru does not mean they have good character that pleases the Lord. We should not place worth on a wicked person's opinion because they are somehow influential. If they are vile in Jesus' eyes, they must be vile in our eyes and not be put on a pedestal. The person that we need to be like and read about here is the same as the person in Psalm chapter 1.1. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. And, and in, um, in 15 there, in Psalm 15, the next part there it says, But he honoureth them that fear the Lord. We must give honour to those who faithfully serve the Lord and do his commandments. The heroes that we should look up to and that our children should aspire to be like are the godly people found in the pages of God's word and the people that we, uh, not the people found on the pages and feeds of social media sites. You are setting yourself up for much discontent and self-hate if you aspire to be like the people in this world. Do what the Bible says, honour your parents, obey them, honour your pastor and those that labour in the word. Bear one another's burdens and fulfill exactly what Jesus wants us to do. As doing these things is right and proper and obedient and brings stability into your life. Further along that verse it says, He that sweareth to his own hurt and changeth not. This is important. Those of us who have made a promise or entered into a contract and then we find out that it's going to now turn out different to how we expected or to our disadvantage you still stick it out because of your word. Your signature, your handshake, your handshake should actually mean something. If you find yourself losing in a deal that you agreed upon, just because you're losing does not mean you can pull out. If the thing, the deal itself is wrong, or if you've made a promise to do a wicked thing, then you cannot be under obligation to execute it. You should at once abandon it because you cannot commit a sin or a vile act and justify it because it was a promise. Herod should never have murdered John the Baptist because of his wicked oath. The law of God frees you from performing wicked deeds that you have committed foolishly to do. You will then have to deal with the repercussions of doing that and the other party may bring penalties against you, but you cannot breach God's laws to fulfill oaths. Just remember the principle of fulfilling oaths laid down here in Psalm 15 extends to all contracts or agreements relating to money or otherwise. And this should be a general rule governing all our transactions with other people. The only limitation in the rule is when a promise or a contract would involve that which is morally wrong 
or were sinful against God's laws. And moving on to verse 5. He that putteth not out his money to usury, nor taketh reward against the innocent, he that doeth these things shall never be moved. So here's more wisdom from this psalm to apply to our lives so we don't be moved, so we live in stability. He that putteth not out his money to usury. So what does this mean here? The word usury, this denotes unlawful interest, a premium or a compensation paid or stipulated to be paid for the use of money or retained beyond the rates of the interest of established law. That's how Webster's Dictionary defines it. So the thing here forbidden is taking interest in such a way that will be illegal, oppressive, hard or demanding from a needy person. This means you're taking advantage of the needs of another person. This is a wicked thing to do in God's eyes. If you have the ability to help someone needy, then do it in a fair, just way, not in a way where you have them in a position where they have no option to pay you and you just demand it. This applies to us all in various ways. We should run our businesses in a fair manner. We should pay our employees who have worked on time and in full. We should fulfil our financial obligations. Don't take advantage of needy people because they have no other choice. It is wicked to gouge people in this way. Proverbs 21.13 says, Whoso stoppeth his ears at the cry of the poor, he also shall cry himself and shall not be heard. Kindness and an accommodating spirit in business transactions is what is required today, just like it was required when David wrote this psalm. God demanded just and fair scales, and he still requires that today when we transact. Whether you are the borrower or the lender, the customer or the merchant, the employer or the employee, you must be lawful in all transactions. If you let physical money dictate how you act, then you have a spiritual problem. And sorrow and shame will result, remembering what the Bible says in 1 Timothy 6.10, For the love of money is the root of all evil which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. And the next part of this verse, it says, nor taketh reward against the innocent. We must not take any forms of bribes to pervert the course of justice. We must not let money or any other thing cloud our judgment when we have power in decision-making. It is a wicked thing to call something right when it is wrong and to call something wrong when it is right. Proverbs 17.23 says, A wicked man taketh a gift out of the bosom to pervert the ways of judgment. Don't be a bully to other people for the reward of self-gratification or just to look tough. Don't take something that belongs to another just to advantage yourself, whether it is technically legal or not. God will judge your motives and resulting actions and he hates it when people take advantage of others for self-gain. And then we read at the end of this psalm, he that doeth these things shall never be moved. So this is the result of living out these principles in these earlier verses. This person has a solid foundation of hope. They will be a friend of God, which means they will enjoy his favour forever. The tallest building in the world, the Burj Khalifa in Dubai, rises more than 823 metres, so it's nearly a kilometre tall. It has 160 floors. It is twice as tall as the Empire State Building in New York City. It's also home to the world's fastest elevator that travels at 65 k's an hour. 
The Burj Khalifa also hosts the world's highest outdoor observation deck on the 124th floor and the world's highest swimming pool on the 76th floor. But the secret to the stability of this massive building is found underground. Before construction began to rise up, workers spent a full year digging and pouring the massive foundation that supports this building. This foundation contains 54,000 cubic metres of concrete weighing more than 110,000 tonnes. If you see those concrete trucks driving around today, that's 9,643 concrete trucks worth in its foundation alone. The building is safe because the foundation is solid. Godly and righteous living is important as a matter of obedience, but there are also many wonderful benefits that follow as a result. When we live according to the principles of God, um, in his wisdom, we receive his blessing, but we also establish a firm foundation for our lives and for our families. These principles in this psalm are the basis of a true Christian life. And he who has such character will live, eternally, will live victoriously in this life and will have eternal life. His foundation is sure. He will be safe in all the storms of life and safe when the cold waves of de death beat about him. Matthew 7, 24. Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. And then verse 25 says, And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon the house, but it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. I believe it goes without saying that Jesus Christ was certainly the greatest teacher who ever lived, and it's essential for us to constantly study his words. He used the method of declaring a principle, amplifying it, and then illustrating it so we can all understand it. If he declared a truth, it's important, actually it's essential, that we have the given principles established within our own lives to be able to live out that truth. The only way to live a stable Christian life built on the rock and free of shame, guilt and regret that comes <clears throat> with living any other way is on Christ Jesus. When you have this stability, you get the blessings that follow. Joy, security, peace. And you're a help to others. And not only that, when you have this life, you don't need to tell everyone about it. You don't need that self-gratification. God just gives you that peace. People will just see it in your life and they'll see it in the fruits of your life. If you remember the story when um, Elijah got taken up to heaven, Elisha came back. And before he'd even said a word, the sons of the prophets said, the spirit of the Lord rests on him. They saw it. He didn't, they just knew it. And that will be the same for you. People will notice in your life when you have these things set in your life. Just by looking at you, others will do that. Security in life brings security in self. And God and, the, and, God and his principles outworked are the foundations of this security. So I'll pray. That's it for tonight. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for tonight, Lord. I thank you, Lord, for your word and all the things that I learned through um, studying for this message, Lord. I pray, Father, that we will apply these principles. I pray, Lord, that you would help us all to change what we need to, that we would um, magnify what we need to, and that we would just give you the all, all the glory for the resulting things that happen in our lives. We thank you that we can um, bank on your promises. We know that they're true. And we pray, Lord, that you just um, uh, bless us tonight as we go away. I pray you keep us safe and bring us all back next week, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.